You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Our next reader is a um, very um, successful and popular um, romantic comedy novelist, would you say? I or don't care. What did we call it? Mystery, comedy, uh, romance? We just uh, threw a bunch of stuff at vampires. it, whatever sticks. There's a series called Casa Dracula that's published by Pocket Books, and um, uh, the author is here with us tonight and going to read from a new one, I believe, and I'm like to introduce, I'll go ahead and introduce <laughs> Marta Acosta. Does this work? I think so. Okay, a little about me. I'm the author of the Casa Dracula novels, and my next book is a romantic comedy called Nancy's Theory of Style, which is set here in San Francisco. It's also social satire, and it will be released by Simon & Schuster's new galley, gallery imprint in June. And then I've got a fourth Casa Dracula coming out in November of 2010. Um, I'd like to read, I'm, I wrote everything down because I have a real tendency just to go off track and never come back. So I, And say appalling things, right? I do say appalling things. <laughs> so I always have to, and my husband says, well, there are, you're saying them in irony, but not all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so some of them are my real opinions, and some are just crap that comes out. So I've written a young adult gothic called Shadow Girl of Birch Grove, and uh, my agents got it out with editors right now. Hopefully it will find a home soon because I always like getting those checks. I'm, I'm just blue collar. I like getting a check for writing. I know it's, I know it's gauche. Um, my parents didn't see to giving me a trust fund. What can I say? Okay, so for, this is from Shadow Girl of Birch Grove. On the night that I die... The storm raging outside is not as fierce as my stepfather raging inside. His hand is so sweaty that I am able to pull out of his grasp. I run through the kitchen past my mother's body. My foot slides in the pool of scarlet blood on the cracked yellow linoleum floor. I wrench open the back door and run outside. The darkness is unfathomable and the rain beats down and I am small and terrified. Come back here, my stepfather bellows, and his heavy steps splash, splash through the mud as he comes after me. The neglected yard is fenced, and he is closer to the gate than I am. I slosh toward my secret place among three enormous trees at the back end of the yard. It is too dark to see, yet I know when I have reached the largest of the trees, and I creep around it, hiding behind its wide trunk. Jane! Though I can't hear his movements, I know he's somewhere near. I peer around the tree trunk as lightning flashes, briefly illuminating the monster that he's become. His face is contorted by madness, and his sweatshirt is soaked with my mother's blood and rain. The dark metal of a gun glints in his hand. I shake uncontrollably. I move behind another tree and grip the rough bark, struggling to climb, but the smooth soles of my sneakers slide and even the lowest branches are beyond my reach. An ear-splitting blast stuns me and throws me back against the third tree. I think it's lightning. 
A second later, pain radiates from below my shoulder so to every part of my body. My knees buckle in agony. I know that if I fall to the ground, I will die. I twist toward the tree as blood sweeps from my chest to the trunk and the rain washes it to the soil, the tree's roots. Help me, I think, help me. As I begin to black out, I feel arms. No, not arms. I feel something take me and lift me high into the wet green branches. Lightning explodes, deafening me and cleansing the air with pure ozone. In that flash of brilliant white light, I look far down to the ground and I see my stepfather's body jerk violently as electricity rips through him. Mm. Later, I hear the sirens approaching and then the voices amplified by bullhorns. The storm has passed and the rain falls through the branches in a soft drizzle. I want to sleep. The girl, the neighbors said there's a girl here, someone says. They call my name and I hear them rushing through the house and into the yard. Jane, Jane. I don't answer because I want to stay where I am. Here, a man says, a shoe. They are close now and they move below me. A woman says, on the tree, blood. Oh my God, so much blood. Where does it lead? Up. Is there something up there? Turn on the light this way. Where? In the tree, way up there. I nestle closer to the trunk so they won't find me. I feel as if I'm drifting somewhere. Then all my pain vanishes. I can't hear the noise or the voices any longer. I, shut my, I open my eyes and I'm in a glorious shady wood. I inhale air that smells of springtime and pine and happiness. I want to stay here forever. I see someone coming toward me. I know she's a woman by her gentle movements, but she's not human. Her dress falls to the brown earth and tendrils of the hem reach into the soil. I can feel her kindness, and then she begins leading me out of the lush wood world. I don't want to leave, I tell her. We will always be with you, Jane, she says without words. Now you must breathe. I gasp and open my eyes. Pain suffuses my body. I'm lying on a hard surface and a cloth is covering me. Through it I see flashing lights. I hear the cackle of voices on police radios and someone is crying nearby. I tug the cloth away with my good arm, my right arm, and a man shouts, she's alive, oh my God, she's alive. Bright lights shine in my eyes and people in uniforms rush at me. How in the world did she get up there, someone says. The trees, I answer. She's in shock. You'd be in shock too if you just come back from the dead. The next few weeks are as vague as smoke. Painkillers are pumped into my body to make me sleep while I heal. Those times that I'm awake, I'm groggy and confused. I already have difficulty remembering that night, my mother's voice, the wonderful green place. Faces become familiar. There's a doctor with a tiny teddy bear clinging to her stethoscope. When she talks to me, her words are a pleasant hum. One day, I open my eyes and my mind is clear. The doctor smiles and says, how are you feeling today, Jane? Better, I try to say through chapped lips. She lifts my shoulders and holds a glass with a straw to my mouth. You've been awake more. We're delighted with your progress. My mother, I say, and I realize now that I've cried for her over and over again in the days that I've been here. I'm so sorry. The doctor lets me down on the pillows and checks my eyes, my pulse, the machines around me. She brushes the hair back from my forehead. Do you know that you climbed 27 feet into a tree, Jane? 
You're such a strong little girl. I know that I didn't climb. How long was I dead? Your heart stopped briefly, and they thought you were dead, but they were wrong, weren't they? No, they were right. On the day that a caseworker from Child Protective Services comes to take me from the hospital, the doctor comes to say goodbye. I don't know if you want this, she says, holding a small white envelope. It's the bullet. I want you to remember that you're stronger than it was. You're a brave girl. I take the envelope, feeling the hardness inside. I don't feel strong or brave. I feel scared and alone. Okay, so um, I was at the opening of Books, Inc. in Berkeley the other night, and I'd like to give a shout out to all the indies, including Borderlands that's here, mm. you know, bringing different voices to us from the ones that you can get at a Walmart or Walgreens or whatever. Anyway, I was doing my usual thing when I was talking to all these book publishing professionals, which is being apologetic about writing comedy and apologetic about writing about vampires, because I know that the first thing that people think is, ah, another stupid woman writing about vampires. <laughs> so I know it's pathetic to feel apologetic when I'm lucky to be published. And, uh, but I want people to understand that I'm not just writing about silliness, even though I think silliness is really, really important. So when I've tried to explain the genesis behind my Casa Dracula novels, People who are not outside the mainstream don't get what I'm doing. It makes no sense at all to them. But I'll tell you, because you seem like you're not the mainstream and you might get it. Years ago, before anyone had ever heard of virginal ivory white vampires that glittered in the sunlight. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I gotta say my favorite cousin is a Mormon, but. <laughs> I don't get down with that shit. So, um, Mormons are vampires? <laughs> <laughs> the Twilight series, it's all Mormon iconography. Anyway, so everyone in this movie that I was watching, the sci-fi movie I was watching, was running around in Lycra jumpsuits, which is not advisable unless you are a professional actor or model because it's, it just has very bad effects on any witnesses, not to, go, not to mention yourself. So I was ranting as I have a tendency to do about the homogeneity of the cast. And I was saying, where's the diversity? You know, or as I told my husband, where are the Mexicans in outer space? <laughs> so where do the Mexicans go? Do the Mexicans just disappear? And, and what about vampires? Why aren't there any Mexican vampires? Maybe because vampires are too snobby. You know? Think of the vampire images we have, these Europeans, very suave, very well-dressed, very wealthy, you know, they just fulfill all the cliches. So I thought about writing a book with an empathetic protagonist who happens to be a Latina, and, and what happens to her when she meets ambitious, snobby, and successful vampires. And because I'd read a lot of P.G. Woodhouse, <laughs> too much perhaps <laughs> I gave her the ridiculous name of Milagro de los Santos which means miracle of the saints so she's smart and she's funny and she's silly and she's too trusting she's idealistic and she's easily distracted and she's sometimes a little delusional like a lot of the people with fabulous imaginations and empty pockets who come to the big city looking for excitement looking for culture, looking for something else. 
Milagro writes horror and science fiction novels that are left-wing political allegories, or screeds. <laughs> For some inexplicable reason, she can't get an agent or a publisher. I was a little influenced by uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Kilgore Trout character, who wrote, you know, great ideas, terrible writing. So I never quite specify whether Milagro is a good writer or not. <laughs> but I think maybe not. <laughs> So it was important to me that Milagro have the qualities that one would want in a friend, that she be a decent human being who makes mistakes but tries to rectify them. So when I get a fan letter from somebody, a 16-year-old in New York or a 60-year-old Christian grandmother in South Carolina or a 30-year-old goth chick or a Muslim university student in London, it, it, it's really important to me. It means that I've connected with that person, that I've, I've passed my message, and maybe they're rethinking their ideas of what a Latina is supposed to be. So my character, Milagro, is other in our society. She doesn't fit in anywhere. And while she's realistic about that, I tried not to make her as bitter as perhaps I am. She wants to change and improve her world. That is an important facet of who she is. She wants to make a difference. Now, this is one of my theories. I have a lot of theories. Some would say they're unsubstantiated. Some would say they're specious. But I think that everyone, inside and out, often feels a sense of being disconnected from the society around them. We're at a party or an event. We're with our families or at work or with friends everywhere. And we take a look sometimes. We take a look around us and we get the sense that we're different, we're separate, we're, we're an individual. And it's not necessarily loneliness, but it's definitely an, a feeling of just being cut off. And um, that brings me to Octavia Butler. What I love about Butler's novels are not just the very clean, crisp, clear prose, which is, it, it takes so much work to write like that, to write so simply, so beautifully. But I love the matter-of-fact way she deals with the narrator's identities. We don't know immediately what they look like, what their race is, what their, and their gender seems less important than their sense of individuality. And she gets beyond the categories. Our society wants to categorize who we are so that we're easy for them to understand. They want to say, put us, you know, specify our race, specify our gender, specify our belief system, our socioeconomic status, our education, our marital status. And then once they put us there, they don't really have to think about us too much. That's it. They put us there. We fit. You know, we're in this niche. But inside, we know that we're more than just this label from the outside. We're not just a spouse or a parent. We're not just an office worker or a student. And we're not just young, old, rich, poor, educated, not, whatever. We're not just a word that's used as shorthand to describe a skin color or ethnic background. We are something besides all that and something inside ourselves that looks out at the world. And we feel our own individuality. Um, Butler had a gift of being able to connect that her protagonist with the reader. The protagonist could be a 70-year-old vampire who looks like a 12-year-old African-American girl. Or she could be a modern African-American woman who's thrown into the past and must repeatedly save her ancestor, a slave owner, 
like in Kindred. But in these novels, Butler doesn't waste her time thinking of a, of a scientific reason that would justify a vampire society or time travel. We never know why. We don't know why it happens. It just happens. It just is. We're there. And we're in, suddenly in her confused, starving vampire's mind as she tries to figure out who and what she is. Or we're with the educated modern woman who's forced over and over again to make a dreadful decision about whether she should save someone who becomes a brutal slave owner. Um, she uses first-person narrative, and I don't know, how, uh, a lot of writers are criticized for using first-person narrative. They're criticized because it's a beginner's, you know, this is how beginners do it. They write first-person past tense. Uh, however, not, no problem to, to Claire, but uh, third-person present tense, which is ubiquitous to all MFA programs, never gets criticized. And it's always the same. <laughs> So, yes, first person is the easiest voice for a beginning writer, but it's also a really challenging voice because it has so many restrictions on the outside. How do you relay information beyond the narrator's point of view? How do you, how do you describe the narrator's misconceptions? How do you keep the reader interested in the narrator for, you know, 350 pages? A gifted storyteller knows how to do that, knows how to get the essential information to you within the restrictions, and knows how to let the reader understand the narrator's fallibilities and weaknesses and strengths. So first person present tense is our normal storytelling voice as well. It's how we talk to our friends, our lovers, our families. And a well-written well first person narrative is as intimate as listening to somebody tell you her personal story. This is what happened, this is what I felt, and this is what I thought. This is what I'm confiding in you because I think you'll understand, and because I want you to know me and know what I'm going through. And Bronte used first person in Jane Eyre, Nabokov used it in Lolita, Twain used it in Huckleberry Finn, and Lee used it in To Kill a Mockingbird. Octavia Butler used it in her novels. Fledgling begins, I awoke into darkness, I was hungry, starving, and I was in pain. There was nothing in my world but hunger and pain. No other people, no other time, no other feelings. So she starts out in a way that's very immediate, it's very personal, it's urgent. And she takes us right into her character's world. There's, no, there's nothing that gets you there, you're there. And by doing so, she's saying to her reader, you see, we both have the same feelings. We both have the same hopes and fears. We both value life, love, decency, bravery. We both see the importance and the of the individual and the greater importance of the world beyond the individual. We connect because we are not merely our labels. We connect because we share our humanity. For me, that's what good writing is, going beyond the labels to share our humanity. Octavia Butler was saying, I trust you to understand what's important to me. So am I. Thank you.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.